Well, it's good to be back. It's good to be back in the house. It is dangerous. If y'all know me, I cry when I worship. So to come up right after that, man, I know I got my eyes uh, fixed, but if my nose keeps crying, hopefully the five o'clock shadow will catch it. <laughs> but it's good to be here, whether you are here with us in person, whether you're here online, it's good to see the Me Shows back in the house, Vanessa on the mic. Pastor Vanessa with us, Pastor Fred back with us. But how many of you, whether you're here tonight, whether you're online again tonight, you've been blessed these past through few weeks by church online? That being an option in this, in this inconsistent season to consistently know that even if you can't make it to church, even if, even if church isn't open, we still got online service. And there's been testimonies. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, somebody from our church was moving out of state. Right. And so they're in the chat and they're like, hey, our, our car is rattling. The engine is rattling. It sounds like it's about to fall out from under the hood. We might have to stop. Can you pray? Right. And so people in the chat just started praying, started praying. And within moments, she replied, now that our church family is inside the vehicle praying for us, the rattling has stopped. Right. Little cool stuff like that is happening on online church. We had a, another young lady uh, a couple weeks before that. I don't even know how she got the link. I haven't got that information from her yet, but she showed up. She responded to the call for salvation. We got our Praxis book. We've been in contact. So just online church, it's already bearing fruit. So thank you. Uh, honestly, if, if it's been blessing you, you can thank uh, Chandler and Celeste Agate. You can thank Ryan Nicholson. They're like the tip of the spear. I guess that's like a trident. They're the online church trident. Uh, and uh, you can thank them. Um, but before we jump into, I want to give one more shout out. I want to give a shout out to Alvin Tatum. I don't think he's in the house tonight, but I don't know if you saw on Facebook. It's kind of a big deal. He was the Virginia Peninsula Crime Stoppers 2020 Law Enforcement Officer of the Year. So you can give it up for him. I wanted to pause, show him honor, show him thanks, because I don't know. It's been a tough year to wear a badge. Right? And may we be praying for officers, especially like Alvin, that love God, love people, right? That, that as it talks about in Jeremiah 29, want to see the welfare of the city God has put us in. And, and in doing that, they put on that uniform. You know, as we pray for the, the welfare of our region and our city, this is free. You can both push for reform and support the police, right? You can both pray for uh, the police and then also pray for, for whatever uh, 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 accountability needs to be put in place. You know, our culture lives on this diet of division, feeds us false choices. And if we're not careful, right, we get Romans 12 backwards, we start conforming rather than transforming and renewing our mind, we'll, we'll, we'll buy into these false choices. But may we choose continually to be praying, again, for officers like Alvin, the officers he goes to work with that love our city and love our region well and do it with excellence like Alvin. Because, again, he was the law enforcement officer of the year. Alvin, you're not here, are you? I'm blinded up here. But when you see him, always oh, online. Alvin, congrats, buddy. I'm going to high-five you when I see you, maybe a little elbow when we see each other. But we're going to uh, jump into the series tonight. The series we're in is called Protagonists Anonymous. We're looking at minor roles in Scripture. Maybe people that don't get a lot of ink, but they teach us major lessons. They can teach us a whole lot when we apply what they teach us. And to get us, after all that introduction, moving in the right direction, I just want to ask a question. What are some things... That as a kid, you thought would be a big deal later in life that turned out to be an afterthought as an adult. Like as a kid, you stressed it. You thought, man, when I'm an adult, I don't know how I'm going to survive this. But then you realize, oh, not even a big deal. 2020, the year 2020. 
2000, oh, oh, Y2K, got you. Yeah, that's true. I know for me, the amount of times I was taught how to stop, drop, and roll, I thought for sure I'd have been on fire by now. Maybe even spontaneously combusted. Because I, I, they, they make sure you know to stop, drop, and roll if you're on fire. I've never been on fire, praise Jesus. I know I'd watch my dad. He'd, he'd have like stacks of envelopes, stacks of paper, paying the bills. I was like, when I'm an adult, I am for sure forgetting one of these bills. But thank goodness Jesus saves and so does auto draft, right? You got both of those going for me because my dad would do that. I'd be like, I don't even know how he keeps track, right? We're a different generation. But then I know also, maybe you can relate to this one, uh, another something that, that felt like it was going to be a stress later in life is, is <clears throat> quicksand. Right, pop culture, right, that the earth would, would open up, solid ground would vanish, and I'd be swallowed whole by the ground beneath me. Again, this was like a pop culture thing because it was everywhere. Are you th- Never-ending story. The horse drowning in the mud while a kid tries to save it, that's traumatizing. That is trauma, right? You think of Swiss Family Robinson, family-friendly movie, Zebra, swallowed by quicksand. Indiana Jones recently, neck deep in quicksand. Think of like Princess Bride. Wesley jumps in to say buttercup. I used to, as a kid, hold my breath, thinking, I better make sure I can hold my breath as long as he did so I can know later in life when I'm swallowed by quicksand that, that I'll survive it. Uh, again, all this stuff. It had me ready to encounter quicksand. You'd have thought by my age, I'd have maybe two or three times found some quicksand. Nah, never. But I share all that for a reason. Buckle up. Share all that for a reason. I want to read from Psalm 46, verses 1 through 7 tonight. And, and if you're taking notes, the, the, the title for tonight's Protagonist Anonymous is Korah's Kids. Or as it says at the beginning of this psalm, the sons of Korah. And they write in Psalm 46, they say in verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way, and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So you read these verses in Psalm 46 that the sons of Korah wrote, and you see talk of the earth giving way. See, talk of the earth melting. And it sounds like these authors shared the same fear that I did as a kid, that, that the earth would open up and swallow them, right? Were it not for God being their fortress, their refuge, and their strength. And who are these authors, and why can they relate to my childhood fears? Well, we don't know their names exactly, but again, they go down in Bible history as the sons of Korah. And they wrote 11 psalms in the book of Psalms. They got Psalm 42, 44 through 49, 84, 85, 87, and 88. And we're going to read some of those tonight. But unlike individual psalms that get attributed to individuals like David, like you can trace some of the, the psalms of David to what was happening in his life when you read Samuel, the books of Samuel, which is fascinating to me. But the author of, of these psalms that are written in this first-person perspective, they remain individually anonymous. But if you're like me and you start looking for context clues, obviously the first question is, well, who's Korah and why is his name so significant? 
You know, Korah is found when we take a hard left turn in the pages of our Bible to number 16. If you want to turn there, we're going to be there in a minute. It's where we see his, his seemingly whole family wiped out in dramatic fashion. But first, to understand why he casts such a long shadow through the pages of Scripture from that point, I want to turn all the way back to Genesis. Because in Genesis, we see some protagonists most famous. We, we meet Adam and Eve. And they're placed in the Garden of Eden, this ideal environment, with direction from God himself. And amidst this direction, right, they got one command. Eat from any tree except for this tree over here, the tree of good and evil. And Adam and Eve, they managed to fail this singular command, and we see sin and death enter the picture. And in Genesis 3, we see God speak on the curse of sin over mankind. You know, Paul speaks to this curse in Romans 5, 12. It says in Romans 5, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Sin's curse took root with Adam, and it's bore fruit in every generation since. It's the original generational curse. And then you read just a couple books later in the Old Testament where we read November, November, <laughs> Numbers, there's no book called November, Numbers 14, 18. It reads that the Lord is slow to anger and filled with unfailing love, forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion. Amen for that. But he does not excuse the guilty. He lays the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. And I share all that because if we take what we just talked about in Genesis 3, that verse from Romans 5, this verse in Numbers 14, and we begin to piece it together, we can, we can drift into this theology, or really a, a mythology, based on screwy theology with generational curses. Maybe you've experienced it, where the quick and simple way to diagnose a sin you commit is to attribute it to your parent or grandparent who sinned in the same way. Where if you struggle with lust like your father did, Oh, you, you probably got a generational curse. You struggle with alcoholism like your parents and grandparents did. Well, that, that might actually, that could be a generational curse. Oh, you, you have an eating disorder like your mother and sister did. Well, that's a generational curse. Right, if there's a sin that's present in your family that is in your life, it's not just a scripture or pattern that God wants to break and transform in you. No, it's a generational curse. And maybe you haven't experienced this firsthand, and you're thinking, who believes that, Right? That sounds like something random that might happen over there, but how, does, how is this relevant to me? Why is this a big deal for me? Again, how could this be relevant at all? And I would tell you it's extremely relevant, especially right now in our nation, 2020. Because what we've experienced in our culture this year, this, this level of, of protest and crying out for social justice, my generation has never seen on this level. And some would scorn it and say that, man, that's, that's divisive, but... <laughs> Racism is divisive, and, and all of this is serving to expose the racism that's been in place for centuries. And, and just as important as recognizing that it's been in place for centuries is recognizing that the church helped put it there. Those are cold, hard facts. And how did they do it? They did it with this teaching, generational curses. You know, the curse of Ham was something that was preached and taught from pulpits, not to, just to justify and normalize slavery, but to spiritualize it. The curse of ham, we're not talking about eating pigs and bacon, praise God, right? That's cool. But ham was the name of one of Noah's sons. And we're familiar with the story of Noah, where there's the flood, they're in the ark, you know, they, they save all these animals, right? And then after that, Noah plants a vineyard. He gets drunk off his own grapes, and he passes out, and, and he's exposed. And his son Ham sees this, 
And rather than either covering him or helping him, he ran and told his brothers. And so it says, when Noah woke, he learned what Ham, his youngest son, had done. Then he cursed Canaan, the son of Ham. May Canaan be cursed. May he be the lowest of servants to his relatives. So how on earth does this seemingly obscure verse from the Old Testament in Genesis become relevant, especially to today? Well, Ham was the ancestor of most of Africa. And because his descendant was cursed to slavery or the lowest of servants to his relatives, what well, I meant leaders in, in European and American churches, they concluded that, that African slaves were prophetically destined to be slaves. It was their divinely ordained place in life. So what this did is it served to anesthetize the consciences of people who called themselves Christians but also enslaved human beings created in the image of God. And it also served to tell slaves that to resist slavery was to resist God's divinely ordained will and risk eternal punishment. All this because of a generational curse from an ancient, ancient, ancient forefather. Now, never mind the fact that uh, Noah only uh, cursed one of Ham's four sons. He had three other sons whose descendants, uh, they built Ethiopia, Egypt, and Libya, two of which were great civilizations. And never mind the fact that the Bible doesn't support this idea of generational curses to begin with. So why do I share all this? Well, because that example, that's national, that's cultural, but the enemy loves to weaponize this way of thinking and this flawed theology to wreak havoc in individuals. Especially this idea of, of controlled outcomes where he can use it to keep us from living free, keep us enslaved to strongholds, keep us from finding hope in Jesus, keep us repeating scripts, chained to habits. So with the table set, right, with the issue set before us, let, let's turn to our appetizer that sets the sage for chorus kids tonight. And it's in number 16. I'll meet you there. In my heading for number 16 reads Cora's Rebellion. And for some, Cora's not that anonymous. Because when you've read the story of Cora, it's kind of hard to forget. Because this guy wasn't just a, a victim of like simple quicksand. Let me go back to pop culture for a second. Y'all remember Return of the Jedi? Right, the Sarlacc pit outside of Jabba the Hutt's place where they throw prisoners out in the middle of the desert, just swallow them whole. A little too nerdy. Well, that's kind of what happens to Korah, but out of the blue. Let's actually turn to Scripture. Right? It says, I'm going to start in, in Numbers 16, verse 26. I'm going to start reading. It says, Moses warned the assembly, move back from the tents of these wicked men. Don't touch anything belonging to them or you will be swept away because of all their sins. We'll get to those sins in a second. Says so then Moses said, this is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things and it wasn't my idea. If these men die a natural death and experience only what usually happens to men, then the Lord hasn't sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them and they go down alive into the grave, then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. It says, as soon as he finished saying all this, The ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them with their households and all Korah's men and all their possessions. They went down alive into the grave with everything they owned. The earth closed over them, and they perished and were gone from the community. That is some dramatic, stern, serious judgment. So again, you begin to ask the question, what was his rebellion all about? How was this so serious that this was God's response? And in its essence, it was a power grab by Korah and some other men that served in the temple. 
See, the, the Israelites were, were often on the move. They set up a tabernacle. They didn't have the temple yet. So these guys, it was like a set up and tear down church. Any of y'all that were there for the movie theater days, you know, that gets tiring, right? And, and Korah and his, his specific duty was to tend to the sanctuary. But even that, set up, tear down, they probably got tired. It's also possible that at, after the failed attempt to get into the promised land, they thought they could lead better than Moses. Who is this guy anyways? Is he any better than us, right? We got to the promised land. We didn't even get to go in. But they teach another lesson for another sermon another time. That if you're too big to serve, you're too small for leadership. If, leader, if service is beneath you, leadership will always be above you. Korah and those standing with him, they wanted position, they wanted power. You begin to realize they were swallowed by the ways of the world before they were ever swallowed by the earth itself. So they rebelled, they stood their ground, and then the ground swallowed them. Again, this is judgment in most dramatic fashion. This is unforgettable. And it sounds like, when you read this, that their families died with them, right? To a quick reader, you wouldn't expect anybody affiliated with Korah to be on any of the pages of Scripture from here. But as you continue to read Numbers, we see God's grace shine through. Numbers 26.11 said this, what happened to Korah, served as a warning to the entire nation of Israel. However, the sons of Korah did not die that day. Just a handful of generations later, the descendants of Korah, known as the sons of Korah, were, were writing psalms that became a part of the inspired word of God. And all the talk we read in that psalm about the earth giving way and the earth melting, it, it makes a lot more sense once you read Numbers 16. But what can this redemption of Korah's family, uh, his line, teach us tonight? What can it free us from? And I just want to look at three lessons from the psalms that they wrote in light of the background that we now know. And the first lesson is this, mistaking consequences for a curse. You know, generations later in Psalm 88.4, the sons of Korah wrote, I am counted with those who go down into the pit. We see the sons of Korah were still viewed in light of Korah's legacy. They still wore that name. You know, one of the biggest lies that sin sells us again and again is it only affects me. My addiction to alcohol, my addiction to porn, it's only going to affect me. It only affects me. But sin derails marriages. Sin upends families. Sin carries consequences. It carries consequences, and often they're communal. Sometimes they're generational. As it says in Numbers 14, it can affect generations. And for the men known as the sons of Korah, the name Korah came with this, this, this legacy of rebellion. In Numbers 16, if you keep reading that chapter, God tells Moses and Aaron that, that Korah's demise was to serve as a warning. And again, as we read in Numbers 26, 11, it had done just that. <laughs> it says, this served as a warning to the entire nation of Israel. Can you imagine, especially for like his direct sons, how that name would have been laced with venom? This was a name synonymous with betrayal. This is like Benedict Arnold in our culture before Benedict Arnold ever was. Right, this name was used to throw shade. It was used as a warning. It was famous for all the wrong reasons. You know somebody's name who's famous for all the wrong reasons is Bernie Madoff. All right? He was already a wealthy man, and he used these, these schemes to swindle friends and connections out of some $65 billion in various schemes. I, I haven't forgot that name because that's, that's pretty serious. And his sons, right, they lived under this shadow their entire lives. 
They said they had no part of it, right? And we'll never know. One died of cancer, but the other at age 40 finally hung himself because it was too much for him to live under the scrutiny and the shadow. It was too much to bear. You know, the sons of Korah may have felt similar when they wrote Psalm 88. Not only do they say that they're counted with those who go down in the pit, they also write, you have put me in the lowest pit in the darkest depths. I've been afflicted and ready to die since my youth. You know, this affliction shows that the the sins of, of our parents, the sins of a father or a mother can affect the next generation. There was an ancient, oft-repeated proverb about the consequences of a parent's sin. It's in the Bible. It says, the fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Meaning sometimes children suffer for their parents' actions, even instead of the parents themselves. There's consequences, but a curse. God directly addresses this proverb through the prophet Ezekiel when he says in Ezekiel 18 that the child will not be punished for the parent's sins. And the parent will not be punished for the child's sins. Righteous people will be rewarded for their own righteous behavior, and wicked people will be punished for their own wickedness. And you read that, you might initially think, doesn't that contradict everything we just read in Numbers 14, 18? But Numbers 14, 18 only speaks to consequences of the sin in the third and fourth generation, not some cause for further sin. There are definitely consequences to sin. What we don't heal in our generation can be handed down to the next generation. Again, look no further than teachings like the curse of Ham from hundreds of years ago that are still affecting and we're seeing consequences from today. But while we pass on consequences, they're not, they're not curses. We're not bound to re- repeat the mistakes of generations past. The sons of Korah show us that while we may be affected generationally, even afflicted, we're not bound generationally by the sins of our parents to repeat those sins. Korah's descendants were still affected as they wrote those psalms generations later. You read that entire list of psalms, you see illustrations again and again that were colored by the demise of their forefather, Korah. But they weren't walking in the same sin. They were serving God faithfully, and their very words were included in sacred scripture. And instead of being swallowed by the earth, their legacy was one of helping people contemplate heaven and point to God. They suffered consequences but were far from cursed. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two is mistaken control and taking credit. See, generational curses is just one side of the coin with this churchy mythology we got to give the boot. Because the bigger issue is is generational control. There's a proverb that we quote often today, and it's not some random ancient proverb quoted by a prophet buried somewhere in the Old Testament. It's right from the book of Proverbs in our Bibles. If you've ever been in a parenting class or talked to other parents in church, you've probably heard it. Proverbs 22, 6. Start children off in the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. Let's add to our Bible tool belt tonight. (laughs) When you read your Bible, we should be aware that it's full of all different kinds of texts. There's history, there's poetry, there's prophecy, on and on, and and there's also Proverbs. See, Proverbs 22, 6 It's a proverb, but it's not a promise. See, promises are checks you can take to the bank. God's promises in Scripture, you build your life on them, right? Like we just saying, you take that to the bank. Proverbs are observations about life. The best definition I once heard was that they are short sentences drawn from long experience. In light of this, Proverbs 22.6 is a general principle. It's a great principle, but it's not a guarantee in parenting. We desire control, though. 
We love cause and effect. Like if I invest, I'm going to reap. Like if I put in, I'm going to get out. We love cause and effect. And so we take this as meaning a godly home will guarantee good godly kids. Somewhere along the way, we've confused will not turn with will return. And Proverbs 22.6 becomes this promise that if our kid goes off the path, they'll return. Now, I was in youth ministry for nearly a decade. And in my days of youth ministry, I had lots of talks with parents about, you know, just the choices their kids were making, the path I saw them on, just checking in. And I came face to face with this flawed application of Proverbs 22.6 all the time. I'm just going to let him sow his wild oats, right? And then he'll return eventually. Or, or, or when she hits rock bottom, she'll know where to turn because we raised her in a good home. You know, so many times we're banking on a check that God didn't write. That if a child is raised in a certain atmosphere, they have to come home like the prodigal. So these parents would wash their hands, sit back, and, and just wait. It's like the generational curse, children bound by the sin of their parents, but, but kind of the opposite, right? They're bound to return because of the faith of their parents. And it's this coin, the two sides of this coin, what the coin is, is this, this false facade of control. You know, we have some control, right? We can parent well, and we're going to get to that, but we do well to consider when it comes to ministry, <laughs> any kind of leadership, parenting, sowing into the next generation, just the imagery of farming and gardening and agriculture. Because for all the work the farmer puts in, right, the, the harvest, the annual harvest may have more to do with the weather <laughs> and circumstances and, and seasonal things totally out of his control than his actual skill or spirituality. And in a similar way, we can pour into the next generation, but the outcome can sometimes be far beyond just our parenting. But the enemy loves to sell us on the facade of control because then he gets to sow some seeds into our lives. And there's, there's two. The first is sometimes we take more credit than we should for fruit in our children's lives. Man, if your child is walking in the Lord, pursuing Jesus, following Jesus, throw a party, Right? High-five your spouse. Praise God, but don't let it, like, stir up this foolish pride. What do I mean? <laughs> you know, when we take credit for the paths that our children have taken, we can begin to look down on parents of, of kids who haven't walked that same path. We kind of become dismissive. Like, how could, how could they not do what I did, follow the same blueprint? Because clearly it bears fruit. Look at my child. You know, I heard a story, <laughs> a pastor who's pastor for decades, he said, you know, when he first started pastoring, he had also started parenting. And he would preach these sermons like 10 rules for raising godly kids. And then he would go on pastoring, he'd go on parenting, realize how much grace is required in parenting, how imperfect his parenting was. And then as he said, as the years went on, it would be like five rules and then three rules. And it'd be like the one, and then finally he said, it would, the sermon would be titled, How to Survive Parenthood with Your Sanity Intact. <laughs> Look, to parent is to steward the lives of children given to you, grace to you by God. This is sacred. And to do it well and to see fruit in your child's life, that is something to be treasured and to celebrate. But let that celebration stir up praise for God rather than pride. And maybe it's because I watched Gladiator too much coming up. But recently, Saturday mornings when I'm, when I'm praying, I know I'm about to preach. I'm like, God, what, what giant are we going to topple today? Right, what giant do you want to see fall today? And when I'm praying that, what I'm asking is, what lie regarding what I'm about to preach on do you want to see cast down? What burden are people carrying that you want to see tossed off their backs? And the ceiling doesn't open, right? God doesn't speak through a megaphone, but 
what I felt impressed this morning, just to share with you, I don't know if it's somebody here, I don't know if it's somebody online, is there are good parents that blame themselves for the rebellion of their children, carrying a weight through life that God never wanted them to carry. If that's you, I cried for you this morning, praying for you. The other side of the coin is when, when we assume control we never really had, we can take on far too much blame, guilt, and shame. A wayward child is not irrefutable proof that you failed as a parent. Right? There are, are far too many parents that take prodigal sons or daughters as proof positive that they failed. And they simply add to their suffering by assuming a control that they never had. And that's why I went there, not because it ties directly to the sons of Korah. It wasn't in my outline. I was telling Fred, man, I was an English major. I like to get my outline perfect, and then I just give the Holy Spirit permission to light it on fire. And that was this morning. But Korah's kids, they do tie into this because they remind us of something powerful. Everyone has free will, even our children. And remember, as we open with Genesis, Adam and Eve from the first pages of Scripture show us that even in the perfect setting, it doesn't guarantee perfect behavior. Does this mean that, again, we punt parenting and, 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 and preparing our children for the right path? Absolutely not. You know, just because so much of farming is out of the farmer's hands doesn't mean that he doesn't go out and work the soil. He doesn't go out and plant those seeds and tend to those plants. But he is also mindful of these simultaneous truths that, that we should hold on to as parents. Look, as parents, we're accountable for how we parent our children. But we aren't accountable ultimately for how they turn out. And I share this again so some of us can, can lay down whatever burden of, of guilt or shame that you've been carrying that God wants you to lay down. But I also certainly don't share this so that you can, like, give up hope. <laughs> that's, not the, that's not the response either. Look, I was a knucklehead. My parents, <laughs> my parents took me to church all through my youth, right? But there was no response, personal relationship with Jesus, nothing. And when I went off to college... It just debauchery, foolishness. I was a fool in the biblical sense of the word. But they never gave up on me. They never stopped praying for me. And it was at 21 when I finally laid down this life of foolishness and started following Christ. It was at 26 where I was ordained as a pastor here to serve the church. You know, the sons of Korah, they also served. They would go on to write in Psalm 84.10 that a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Now, we sing songs based on these words, and when we sing it, we're, we're talking figuratively. But for the sons of Korah, this wasn't figurative. They served as gatekeepers at the sanctuary. They labored and worked, again, in the house of God. And they certainly didn't get this adoration and love for the work of the temple from their forefather who scorned this and looked to supplant Moses' leadership. But again... Korah may have passed on consequences, but there was no curse or control. And he most certainly couldn't take credit for this passion present in his descendants. And it just reminds us that God is constantly at work, this work of redeeming, this work of saving, even when it's in spite of our imperfect parenting. Praise God for his grace. Praise God for his faithfulness. And this leads us to the third point we can take from the sons of Korah, that a saving faith is a personal faith. For some of us, if we stood before God on judgment day and we were judged based on the, the faith and actions of our parents, oh, we'd be in a world of trouble. For others of us, if we were before God on judgment day and we were judged by the, the faith and deeds of our parents, we might be in a great place. But guess what? It doesn't matter. Because we're not going to be judged by the faith of our parents or our forefathers. A saving faith is a personal faith. 
Again, it says in Ezekiel, righteous people will be rewarded for their own righteous behavior and wicked people will be punished for their own wickedness. And yes, we, we read earlier what Paul says in Romans 5, 12, where he talks about the curse of sin that entered through Adam. But he doesn't, he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say that just as through the disobedience of one man, Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. And because of this, Paul can go on to say in Romans 6, verses 16 and 18, don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey. You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Now you are free from your slavery to sin, and you have become slaves to righteous living. There are two very important words used multiple times in this passage. You choose. You choose. The enemy loves to feed us half-truths that will keep us bound in chains, living in fear that we can't get out of this trap that sin has laid for us. But no matter what habit in life you haven't been able to shake, no matter what script you just keep walking in again and again, we need this reminder from Romans that Jesus died to free us. Jesus died to make us righteous. And then we have this agency we find in Romans 6 that you choose. Again, think of how that name Korah must have come with all this weight. But moving forward, they got to choose what they wanted that name's legacy to be. You see, God's grace, the good news of the gospel, means that if you don't like the past fruit of your family tree, you get to plant a new one. And this isn't just about family names. If you don't like the fruit on your tree in your life so far, guess what? You get to plant a new one. The Bible says we're made a new creation. And what's at the root of this new creation? It is Jesus Christ, and it's our identity in him. See, how did, the, how did Korah's kids change the fruit of their family tree, the fruit of being counted among those who go down into the pit? But if I could bet there was a mission statement of the sons of Korah, it's, it's Psalm 45, 17, which they wrote, which says, I will make your name to be remembered. See, Korah's kids, ultimately they found their identity in being God's kids. The root of their identity was no longer in their, their name, it was in God. And that changes everything. We were once children of the pit. We all had sinned and fallen short. Says so in Romans 3, but now we're children of God. We get to operate from that assurance of God the Father's unconditional love, not the approval or disapproval of either God or man. We've been adopted. We've been justified by the blood of Christ. That is a game changer. We're no longer a slave to sin, no longer a slave to approval. We are a child of God. And so the question becomes, ultimately people may forget my name in history. <laughs> I may end up anonymous. I'll be that one guy. But even if they forget my name, will they remember how I pointed to Jesus? You know, as we open in worship, he's the name above all names. I appreciate your patience. <laughs> Just saw the time. I'm going I'm to wrap this up, though. See, Chris, he didn't know this, this sermon was coming, and I'm just sitting back there worshiping, and we, we sang these words, Jesus defeated the curse. He's never lost a battle. Made me think of, of Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. The curse of Adam was laid on Jesus, and he took, it, he took it on for me and you. We're no longer bound to sin, no longer bound to bear judgment for it, no longer bound to whatever our forefathers may have done. So, God, I pray whatever may have us bound tonight, be it a lie that we bought from the enemy, maybe a half-truth, a little nugget from Scripture that just doesn't line up with the rest of it, doesn't line up with who you are, doesn't line up with who we are in you. 
God, remind us of those words. We also sang in that song that, that, that you don't lose, that we walk in victory, we walk in freedom, and that you've never lost a battle. May we choose. May we choose well who we serve, what we worship. And Jesus, may it be you. I pray that, that our legacy, that baton we pass to our children, it will look different than the one we received. Even if it was a, if it was a good one, Lord God, that our pursuit of you, our heart for you, the things of you, God, that it would have such an impact on our hearts and our actions and our lives and our parenting and, and, and our marriages and, and our relationships, Lord God, that, that that baton we hand off will be one that, that brings so much glory to Jesus and his name. It's the name above all names. And we pray that as we sang earlier, every knee would bow that you're Lord. Every tongue confess that you're Lord. If there's anybody here tonight who's never prayed that prayer, man, don't leave this place tonight. We'd love to pray for you, resource you. If you're online, you can respond in the chat. But man, whatever burden you have that the Holy Spirit has, has put its finger on, say, lay this down. Stop carrying this. Jesus died for this. Pray that we'd be able to respond. Jesus, we thank you that you became a curse for us. So we don't have to bear any, anything of the sort, Lord God. Thank you that we get to walk in freedom. We get to choose you. And may we do that with our hearts, do that with our, our words, do that with our actions today and every day. We know that that is our living act of worship. So we praise you in this place, and we leave here praising you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.